Welcome to episode 45 of the Distracted Driving Podcast. I am Sean Genovese, and we have a, a proper start to the show coming up in just a moment, but I wanted to just uh, preface a couple of things with this conversation. First of all, there's uh, there's some technical issues. Uh, they are fairly minor, but if you were watching this episode on YouTube, you may notice a few jump cuts. Uh, we had some latency issues with the audio, and so there were times when we were talking over one another. So I've done my best to fix that. If you're listening, you, you may not even notice. This conversation, uh, first of all, is um, one where I have a new new co-host, um, at least for now, Stephanie Van Ash is making her debut as a, uh, a rotating co-host here on the Distracted Driving Podcast. You've seen her before as a guest, but as uh, Rex continues his relocation, uh, Stephanie's going to step in here for our conversation uh, with a friend of mine, Dr. James Moore. Uh, Jim recently retired from USC after 35 years. And um, uh, there were some circumstances surrounding his retirement that uh, made for, well, this conversation. It uh, may be a little bit controversial. Uh, he authored a piece that uh, appears online entitled, Why I'll Never Be Allowed to Teach at USC Again. We're going to get into that story uh, through the course of the conversation. It is a long conversation. We spoke to, to Jim for... Uh, about an hour, almost an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes. This is just the first part of that conversation. So we're not really going to get in too much to the letter in this part, uh, but we will find out how uh, how James ended up at USC, uh, and he'll discuss sort of the homogenization of uh, academia and why it tends to lean one way politically rather than another. And, uh, and then in the future parts of the conversation, we'll get more into the letter and what happened with his exit. But for now, enjoy this first part of our conversation with James Moore, uh, again entitled, There Was Some Emerging Intellectual Friction. All right, welcome to the Distracted Driving Podcast. I am Sean Genovese. And I'm Rex. Wait, I'm not Rex. I'm Stephanie, co-hosting, sitting in for Rex. <laughs> yes, welcome, Steph, to your uh, your first uh, co-host fill-in for Rex. And uh, boy, you're, you're in luck because we are joined by a stellar guest today, Mr. James Moore. James, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Stephanie, I didn't realize it was your first time out of the gate, but I look forward to it. It'll be really fun. Sean and I talk all the time, so now we're just doing it recorded. That's right. That's right. And uh, and Rex is still, uh, what did I say before? He's on sabbatical. Uh, he's He's relocating. So he's been he's been unavailable. Actually, he went on vacation. Is what happened. Um, he he is moving, but I'm like, how's the moving going? And he says, uh, well, we're on vacation this week. Oh, okay, I got it. Um, okay, well, cool. So, um, oops, let me turn this off. There we go. James, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, um, 
but uh, it, it is a show that celebrates challenging the status quo and not getting distracted while driving change uh, or driving ideas, so no actual driving of cars involved. But uh, you, sir, are um, the, the epitome of uh, the, the type of person that we like to talk to, and your story that you recently um, published and wrote a letter about, I think, is a, a, a perfect, um, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's a perfect story for this show. And I was trying to figure out, gosh, there's so much here. Um, I, I, I don't know where to start. So I think where I would like to start is, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll give you a chance in a moment to, uh, to, to give us the broad strokes on this. But basically, for our, our five listeners, um, you, you taught at USC for a long time. You, uh, you have since departed under some interesting circumstances, and you wrote a letter about it. One of the most well-written uh, pieces I've, I've ever seen, uh, extremely well-written. I've seen stuff written by you before, though, and uh, I'll always enjoy it. Um, I think where I want to start is this sentence that you have. You said, equal opportunity, never equal outcomes, and inclusion based on merit, not identity. That was one of the many lines that uh, that jumped off the page to me because it it resonates with me as well. I say that all the time. I'm uh, I'm not in favor of e- equal outcomes. I'm in favor of equal opportunity. And this turned out to be a very scandalous idea for you, uh, or at least for your institution. So so maybe with that as a starting point, um, can you tell us what happened? Sure. Um, I have watched some of your other podca- podcasts, so I've got a, a general idea of how things go. You're the one. Um, I, I decided to come on anyway. Um, <laughs> Thank so you. I, I appreciate that. For- <laughs> My pleasure. No, they were very, they were very good. I enjoyed them. Um, so I worked at USC for 35 years. I, had, uh, I was a tenured faculty member there. I retired last year in 2022. Uh, I'd been at Northwestern for a couple of years before that. Um, and in, in December of 87, USC called and said, do you want to come visit for a semester? And I said, I'll be there tomorrow because the snow was falling gently and horizontally as it does in Evanston. And I, I made a lifestyle choice. <laughs> right? um, it was a great, uh, both a good decision and a good outcome for me. Um, I, I know a lot of faculty who are retiring. I mean, you know, you, you work as a faculty member your entire life. Your adult friends uh, consist of people who were faculty when you started and students who became faculty. And they're all saying really basically the same thing. Uh, 30 of the last 35 years were great. 35 of the last 40 years were great. Um, there's been a real sea change in the academy. Um, we have always been a somewhat left-leaning operation politically and intellectually uh, ever since you know I've been a student and that's kind of incidental that's not really terribly important what we were fundamentally was a place where ideas were competing and we seem to have lost the um, the guiding light that that's what we're for that's that's what it's all about 
and this sentiment is being echoed by you know the people that I talk to who are who are leaving. Um, I don't think there's a mass exodus out of the academy. I'm just pointing out that the people that I the people I know who are exiting are saying the same thing, talking about the same thing, and have similar sorts of concerns. It could just be that we're all old, and that's why we're exiting. But um, I think it's more than that, frankly. So. Um, what are some of the things that you saw that really started to mark uh, the shift in, you know, you know, diff ideologies, really people starting to separate and not able to meet in the middle? Well, um, a lot of it related to personnel at universities, no, typically at major research universities, no one agent owns the hiring process. The faculty have a role in identifying who's hired. And uh, the school, the dean has a role, the university has a role, and so it's a, a layered process where there's a lot of vetting and a lot of review because if you're hiring a tenure-stream tenure person, you're probably hiring them for life, so the decision gets made very carefully. And once, once we got to the point where in many departments, the faculty complement, the regular faculty complement, had a... Um, a, a majority um, focus on the left, on a more progressive point of view, uh, we stopped hiring um, anybody with a different point of view. And so politics became a little more extreme than it had been in the past. And there was a, a group on the far left that was very focused on making sure uh, the, whatever existed on the far right got smaller. And that, that's a pretty broad-based statement uh, that applies, I think, across the board in major research universities in the U.S. Uh, it certainly applied at USC. And it hasn't been uniform across disciplines. Um, humanities and applied, English, applied social science all went that direction first. Um, it's been a little bit less pronounced in schools and colleges of engineering or physical science. Um, but then the nature of science and engineering is a little bit different than the nature of social science, social science and the humanities. I mean, we're, we all have judgment. We're all, we all require um, good, subjective, critical thinking in our disciplines. But there's a little bit more in the way of applied physics in the worlds we deal with. And so there's a little bit less room for subjectivity. It's not elevated quite as far. And um, as a result, the, the changes that have taken place within science and engineering have been slower than the, the changes that have taken place in other sections of the other portions of the academy. And that is this, this shift toward a monoculture where, um, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to insult my progressive colleagues, uh, they've got a point of view that um, some elements of which I like, some of which I don't like. Uh, they're certainly welcome to their point of view. Um, but we have, as we've become a philosophically and politically more homogenous place, our willingness to discuss our differences has diminished. And um, I'm, I'm not uh, a politically a conservative per se. I'm a libertarian. I think a lot of faculty who are classified as conservative are in fact libertarian. Some are even objectivist. Um, by the way, if you ever want to get into a fight, call an objectivist a libertarian and see what happens. It gets 
the difference the differences are minuscule minuscule so they're incredibly important um, and this has had a really <laughs> chilling effect it's had a well it's understood um, and uh, this this is the the primary array of changes that has occurred and uh, dissent has become intolerable but what do you think, was there a cause for this? I mean, even going back to, you said the the hiring started to become um, more on one side than the other. What was the cause of that? Or was there a cause? Well, um, I, don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you with respect to why, even when I was a student, universities were a little more liberal than the rest of society, right? I mean, the, the folks who are liberal in universities will say, well, that's because we're smarter than the rest of society. So that's why we were a little more liberal. Um, politics became more polarized nationally. Um, the universities, part of it is related to the growth in student loans because universities have positioned themselves to capture student loan funding. And that's meant growing programs, some of which were um, very subjective in nature and um, haven't really led to highly employable graduates and hiring more administrators. I mean, if you, uh, if you ask somebody in private enterprise, what's, what's the purpose of your organization? Uh, they'll say, well, to, um, to survive and to generate profit right? and there is for all organizations a higher order objective and that is growth now in the private sector you grow by controlling costs and configuring goods and services that people want to consume and are willing to bid for in the public sector the rules are different and in the nonprofit sector which is the typical university sector the rules are still a little bit different still um, but even if there was no but there was some centralized decision making. So boards of trustees, um, senior administrators understood that there was an ocean of uh, tuition money available, largely as a result of loan programs. And we began a period of very rapid growth, also a, very, a period of very rapid increase in tuition. Right? And all of that really has been driven, I think, by the availability, this, the market opportunity available to the universities. And it produced a period of rapid change. And the rapid change that occurred, uh, because we had sort of a, uh, a progressive leaning for the organizations, um, that combination of rapid growth and you know, new, new opportunities uh, with respect to scholarship and teaching and the desire to diversify the offerings that were available at universities um, led to personnel decisions that disproportionately grew us on the left side of the political spectrum. And it turns out that the left side of the political spectrum is not a big fan of dissent. And that, um, that's had some, I think, very negative impacts on, on the quality of intellectual life in American universities. Well, and some negative impacts on your retirement as as well, which I think is a great uh, 
that's a that's a great point to to let's let's pivot just so briefly. Uh, so what did what did happen with your uh, your exit from USC? Well, I always figured I was good for another ten years, right? So I retired at sixty three. Actually, I retired the moment I was within uh, Cobra striking distance of Medicare, right? And that was never the way I planned. To, to exit the organization. You know, most faculty are going to work until their mid-70s, at least. Some will work until their mid-80s. Uh, it is a labor of love in a lot of respects. Um, there's enormous freedom, or was enormous freedom, yes. for faculty in their roles. And so it's a, uh, one reason people were slow to retire. Um, as I was looking at the changes that were taking place, there there had been... There was an, some emerging intellectual friction between me and some of the senior personnel at the institution. And um, one can try to manage that friction and stay. And many, many faculty, there are many conservative faculty, frankly, or libertarian faculty who do manage it and simply decide to conceal it. I mean, they, they hide. And it, it, they've got good incentive to hide because if you out yourself as anything other than a progressive, then you are likely to have op put, uh, professional opportunities removed from your life. If you want to move in one direction in the organization, you aspire to administrative work, um, you want to acquire more scope, more authority, those opportunities are not going to come your way because you don't have the right mindset. And there's no committee that vets your opportunities. Uh, it's just that most of the people making decisions, of personnel decisions, within the university are themselves progressive, and the filter gets applied. Call it an implicit bias, if you want, though sometimes it gets, you know, almost explicit. I have a question. How does the yes. how does your political identity come in play? in the day-to-day -day life of being a professor? Is it more behind the scenes with your own career progression and opportunities that you get kind of like with your colleagues? Is that where it plays out more? Or does it have, is there, you know, friction also with the students and in the classroom? Um, I've been pretty fortunate in the sense that the students I've worked with have been, I've been supportive of them and they've reciprocated and been supportive of me. I mean, I'm interested in their development and their progress in life and what they're there to, to, to accomplish and to help them. And even if we have differences of opinion about how the world ought to be organized, they tend to respond first to the fact that I'm there for them. And they've, I've, so I've been treated really well by the students. Um, for me, my political point of view is became enmeshed with my scholarship and my view of the world. So I was educated in a somewhat unusual way at the boundary of um, applied social science and engineering. So I had three post-secondary degrees in engineering and two post-secondary degrees in uh, urban planning. And I was very interested in public sector decisions. And the people around me said, you know, this is an interesting interface to work at. We're glad you're doing this. So I got a lot of positive feedback. And as I tried to look at society as a system, um, an interest in economics emerged. And I deepened my training in economics, uh, particularly microeconomics. 
and um, how markets operate and how exchange occurs and what the benefits of that exchange are. And uh, that led me to thinking about a logical role for public authority. And it really influenced the way I addressed public policy questions that had large-scale engineering and infrastructure dimensions to them. So the politics um, of the marketplace played a role in my scholarship. And the, the politics of the marketplace tend to align on the right or in the more thoughtful uh, um, quarters, perhaps among the libertarians, right? Because uh, there are things the right does that, that I don't like. I mean, libertarians tend to be socially liberal and um, fiscally conservative by conventional definitions. And I think it's really a, a winning combination for trying to, to move the culture ahead. Um, and so I, it, it was, it, it, the, the, the political dimension entered my life because it entered my scholarship and the way I published and the things I said and public discourse. And um, that, you know, I wore it on my sleeve basically because that, that was the whole point. I mean, tenure has to be good for something. Um, right. I was getting frustrated in my research. Um, so it turns out that all public sector decisions are fundamentally political. That if you ask yourself, would a, a private company trying to meet specific objectives allocate resources this way? Um, the answer is almost always no, and the answer to the question, why are the resources being allocated the way they are, it's so that somebody can be competitive in their next election. And that's true at the local level, it's uh, true you know, at the national level and every level in between. So most of the funded research I did, I, I got reasonably good at generating research funding and supporting students and placing students on faculties. That was part of the job, and I was happy to do it. I was thrilled to be able to do it. Um, but most of the work that I have done has had no impact at all. And that became a source of frustration. And the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me that you know part of my job was bringing research resources to the institution writing research proposals, sending them to agencies and foundations, persuading decision makers in those organizations that USC was a good place to do this work. And frankly, USC is a very good place to do work of the sort. Um, most major research universities are. But I was, as I thought more deeply about what I was doing, I was asking public authority to take resources from households and firms that they had really taken as an exercise in force through taxation and then passed those resources to USC to pass to me to do research that was accomplishing nothing. And that, no matter how many ways I looked at it, I was now part of the problem. Um, you know, I, didn't, I didn't structure the, the market in which universities work. I stepped into it like everybody else and I, I played it as it lied. I, I, you know, executed based on what I saw and what I found. And I don't blame the universities for the way they are organized. They're responding to an incentive that public authority has put before them. So really, I, I suppose, I blame the way um, public authority has decided to fund research. Uh, I like science. I, I, I like engineering. Um, I 
like uh, large public policy questions. And so I've, I've been really very fortunate to have a life where I've been allowed to pursue that aspect of the life of the mind. But I, as I matured, I realized um, it was coming at the opportunity cost of others. And I began to think more carefully about how research is funded and what the logical role of public authority is in funding it. If I had been 55 years old, I might have come to a different decision. But when I realized that my work was not having impact, it was annoying people. And that had, it had that kind of emotional impact, right? So it was ca it, uh, contravening some people's points of view. And uh, being part of that discourse was fun. But um, I was really uh, subverting the opportunities in other people's lives by buying into what we were doing. The university doesn't care, frankly, about the research. They care about the research funding because that's what feeds their, their natural organizational desire to grow. Right? So as far as the university was concerned, it was the funding that mattered. And that's, USC is not peculiar in that respect. Uh, all you know, major uh, research universities have got that characteristic, and it's logical that they do. Um, but I was dissatisfied with what the work was accomplishing. And when I realized that I was at a point where I could retire and that I wanted to retire, it would have been crazy not to retire. Um, there was the, the only thing standing between me and that outcome was, um, oh, my oh good heavens, will people still respect me if I'm no longer employed as a professor? And well, they will or they won't, but that's, <laughs> that's more or less up to them. And that's the end of episode 45, the first of four parts of our conversation with Emeritus Professor James Moore. Hopefully you enjoyed part one. Part two will be coming up in the next episode. That'll be episode 46. I hope that you uh, could take a moment to like the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform or uh, leave a comment. You can also go to distracteddrivingpodcast.com and leave a comment on any of the episodes, including this one. Next time we will get uh, more into some of uh, James Moore's rather controversial positions on things like uh, Title IX and the civil unrest of 2020 following the murder of George Floyd. Um, it's, um, I think, an interesting conversation and one that I hope you will come back and join us for. Thanks for listening and watching and supporting the show. We will see you next time. <laughs>